excited that you are here. Want to let you know if you're a, a member at Midtree, if you're part of the family of Midtree, want to give you guys a heads up. In about a month, we have a members meeting on the 25th. Anybody is welcome to come to a members meeting, but if you're a member, we really want you to make every effort to be there. We'll have children's programming and stuff like that to make it as easy as possible. Youth will be running at the same time as well. But I, I want to point to that meeting in particular as something special because uh, we will be voting on adding elders to our church. And without going into a big theological discussion on eldership and the church, let me just say our church is in need of more pastor shepherd leaders, which is a wonderful wonderful situation. It's a beautiful thing. And so I, I'm just going to put up real quick three pictures of a couple of families. The first family is Larry Young. He was just standing right here. And so Larry, Christy, and all of their kids. In addition, we have Greg Despain. Greg's sitting right there with a the welcome shirt on, his wife Debbie, and then we have the Wilbanks. I'm not going to name them all because that would take the lion's share of my time to preach a sermon. But I do want to let you know these are three men that we are going to be voting on as elders in our bylaws. We want to give you guys at least a month so that you can reach out to them, get to know them, go out for coffee, ask them questions. That being said, at the members meeting, they will be up here with Stokes and I. Jimmy uh, will still be in Kenya at the time. You'll have a chance to ask some questions, hear their heart, etc., and so on. And so really an exciting thing going on in the life of the family of Midtree. With all of that being said, typically we are uh, working through books of the Bible. We're in the book of Acts. But what we're going to be doing this morning is we're going to be looking at the Holy Spirit. And the reason that we're going to be doing that is if you don't understand who the Holy Spirit is, you're at a massive disadvantage in understanding the entire books of book of acts and what's really fun about this is i probably like three or four weeks ago i put a qr code up and i said hey if you have any questions about the holy spirit just take a picture send it in and i'll answer it i lied to you on that day too many questions came in for me to be able to answer them which is awesome thank you for being a responsive congregation but what i did try to do is take some that were similar and sort of blend them together so if you had a question and you don't see it come up verbatim that doesn't mean that uh, I, i'm not hoping to hit it additionally if you want to get together for coffee or something like that I'm 100% open to do any of that. And so we are going to hop into God's word. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in a pew in front of you. You're welcome to use a phone or a tablet here and not feel any uh, consternation from me. I am using a tablet as well. Let me pray if you would. Well, Father, as we begin to endeavor into digging into your word, especially as we're looking at the subject of the Holy Spirit, we need you. We, we need him to come and illuminate your word so that, one, we can understand it. Two, we can be encouraged and convicted by it. And then three, it not be something that just lives in our sort of cultural Christian Sunday-isms, but that things and realities and truths of who you are get hooks into our heart, into our mind, into our will and that it goes with us, that we are people who look and talk and act more like Christ with each passing day. And Father, for those who may have come in this room and Christianity is something that they're exploring, the, the person and the work of Jesus Christ is something that they're not necessarily familiar with, praise God that they're here. And, and Holy Spirit, I, I do ask that you would... Uh, that, that you would draw them nearer to you to understand their need of a Savior and then find it in life abundant. And I pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right, guys, so what we're going to do this morning is called systematic theology. There's a lot of different kinds of theology, biblical theology, systematic theology. Typically, we work through books of the Bible. We'll be picking up in Acts chapter 3 next week. But in doing a systematic theology, and that's basically when you say, what does the Bible say about like, pick anything. Uh, what does the Bible say about relationships? Systematic theology is like the old school Google search. It's when you get on Google, we've all done this, right? And we're like, fasting. Haven't done that in an ever. So I know it's in the Bible. And what do I do? Fasting in the Bible, scriptures, press enter. You're basically doing systematic theology. As long as you end up in a good, healthy website, right? And so that's what we're going to be looking at. And you guys have sort of built what we're going to look at. But let me give you a warning as we sort of step into this. This is the warning. Knowledge can be a very good thing, but it can also be a very dangerous thing. Consider it in the garden. The tree was the tree of knowledge of good and evil. God created it and called it good. And yet in that knowledge was a capacity for evil. There was this capacity for us to sin. And it can be very easy at church to want to be the kind of person that has the answer to the question. And we can give ourselves assurance and we can feel better about our salvation sometimes in an unhealthy way just by knowing information. And so as we get ready to do this, just keep in mind, knowing more is not always the goal or even good. All right, hit hit a timeout. We're trying something new and I'm realizing it didn't work. Hey, Nick, I got nothing up here. Talk amongst yourselves. How was your weekend? I'm going to try, I'm going to reload it and we'll see if it'll work. I appreciate that some of you are actually doing it. Okay, I think I got it now. Okay, Rack, stop talking. Nobody cares. I'm kidding. Knowing more isn't always the goal or even good. Let me tell you why this is important, because I know you. I know a lot of you. I don't know all of you. I just saw a bunch of impact students walk in. I got no clue about any of you guys yet. I want to. But I do know a lot of us. And a lot of us who swim in the streams that we swim in uh, theologically, we just want to know the right answer. And knowing the right answer is our comfort. Can I just tell you, knowing more isn't always the goal, and sometimes it isn't even good. If we were to... Consider that in Genesis, it's the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and they eat of it, and they grow in knowledge, but it is not a good thing. Then we can go all the way to the book of Revelation, and Jesus is sending this warning to the church in Ephesus. Time is wrapping up. Humanity is coming to an end in its current phase, and and many of you have probably read this. He says, look, here's the deal. You know right from wrong. You call people out if they're in error. If there's a teacher who's saying that they believe in Jesus, but they do not, you put them on Front Street. And he talks about this group called the Nicolaitans. But then he says this, but here's the problem. You've lost your first love. They're the smartest people that we see in the book of Revelation. They know the answers to the question. They are walking theology books. But here's the problem. They forgot to love people. They forgot what it meant for the Holy Spirit not to just be something that they know or answers to be something that they have. They forgot to love people. And here's what the Bible says. It says, if you don't go back and love people. If Christianity is not more than just the right answer, I'm going to remove your lampstand. 
What he's saying is, I'm going to take your light away. You're not going to be a city on a hill. If you don't repent, I am removing you from your place. You can have every right answer and live the most wrong life possible. This is not about having the right answer. So, when we begin looking at questions like, in relation to the Trinity, I've always had a hard time understanding how God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are one yet separate. Most of you are going to go into answer mode. All right, do I know this one? Do I not? Am I a little shady on that? Here, here we go. You can't help it. You can't turn that off. But here's what I want you to turn on. What should that do to your heart? How should that increase your love? How can this answer and this truth mean more than just something that lives in your own bubble? What does it mean for your neighbor who lives next to you? What does it mean for the person who works beside you? How can we show the love of Christ through these things? This, however, is a wonderful place for us to start. In relation to the Trinity, I've always had a hard time understanding how God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are one yet separate. Great question. First scripture we're going to look at. You can go ahead and flip there. It'll appear behind me. John chapter 14, verse 16 and 17. John chapter 14, verse 16 and verse 17. The most important thing for us to begin with this morning is you need to know this. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is as much God as the Son is God and as the Father is God. And here's what John 14 says. Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees. Here's what you've got to see. It neither sees him nor knows him. The Holy Spirit is not referred to as an it. They don't know it. They don't know the Spirit. That's not what's happening here. The Holy Spirit is a person that can be known. It is a person that we read in Scripture can be frustrated, can be encouraged, can be delighted. Scripture goes on. Cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I, I think one of the reasons, and by the way, I'm not going to give you the silver bullet for understanding the Trinity in this moment. But what I can say is, I am a father, I have a father, I understand the term father. I am a son, I have a son, I understand the, the, the term son. Guess what? I have a spirit, feels a little different, harder to define. I know that you have a spirit, I know that you have a soul. We're not ants that are walking around with pre-programmed instincts. We have wills and desires and ambitions, things that need to be killed, things that need to be brought to life. But in addition to having a spirit, the Bible goes further and it says, the Holy Spirit. Well, the word holy means separate. I can get handles on Father. I can get handles on Son. But getting handles on Holy Spirit is very difficult. That being said, I don't have to understand something to know that it's real. My car has an internal combustion engine. I would love for it not to. I'd love to have an electric and zip around all quiet. That'd be really, really cool. But the point is, I know a little bit about a car. I can change brakes. I can do a little bit of work on uh, spark plugs, check the carburetor, a couple of little things, not much. I don't know how that thing works. Gas comes in, a little bit of oxygen. There's an explosion, and then somehow that pushes my car. And what I never understand is, it never feels like enough gas goes into my weed eater for the amount of time that it runs. I don't understand that efficiency. I just don't get it. It's like, I've got drops left. I'm like, here we go. And then it runs for a half an hour. I'm like, who designed this? It's insane. I don't know how it works. But I know when it starts making funny noises and it isn't working. I, I, I don't understand gravity. I know that items fall at 9.8 meters per second squared on earth. 
if we had a bigger planet, it'd fall quicker. If we had a smaller planet, it would, it would fall smaller. But I can't fully explain that. When I was in a zoology class in the 12th grade, learning about dogs, because our zoology teacher just loved playing the AKC dog show, like on loop. I remember looking out the classroom window and seeing my wife. She wasn't my wife then. Getting started real early. Y'all are homeschooling, aren't you? All right. I looked out and I saw her. I can't tell you why my heart like lit up for her, but not the girl who went by before or after. I don't know. I can't explain love or attraction or affection, but it is still, still a very real thing. And I, I, would, I would just stretch us with this. Do you really want to be able to understand all the mysteries of God? Is that a knowledge you really want to have? To be able to contain the greatness and the grandeur of the creator of the universe in your finite broken mind? I don't think so. I don't think we want that. We weren't built for it. And yet all throughout scripture we see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit working in tandem. All one but distinctly different. In creation we see it. In salvation. If you want to do a little study, just jot this down. Ephesians 1. Verses 3 and 4, we see that the Father chooses to rescue before you ever breathe the breath. And then we see that the Son steps in and does a work so you can be adopted into a family. And then in Ephesians 13, we see the Holy Spirit come and seal that thing so that he holds us until the end. The most important thing for us to know is that the Trinity is a very real thing. The Holy Spirit is a person. And it's probably better that we cannot fully understand it. We use analogies all the time. It's like ice and steam and water, but it isn't because the analogy doesn't always hold up. Or it's an apple where there's skin and food on the inside and seed, and they all do different things, but they're all still apple. That's my wife's favorite one. God is a trinity beyond our comprehension and probably better that it is. Question number two, should I pray to the Spirit as I pray to the Father and to the Son. Question number two, should I pray to the Spirit as I pray to the Father and as I pray to the Son? This is a quick one to answer. Nope. No, you shouldn't. Now, if you noticed in the prayer that I prayed before we started, I prayed to all three. I said, Father, tons of prayer. Holy Spirit, we need you in the name of Jesus Christ. So they were all present in the prayer. But I love this question because there is this thing theologically where it's like the Father created, Jesus shows up, then Jesus is like, I'm heading out. Don't worry, the Holy Spirit's coming. He's going to be with you forever. Doesn't it make sense for us to pray to the Holy Spirit? No, let me give you the short answer. That's Matthew 6, 9. Jesus basically says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven hallowed be thy name. Now, Jesus was full of the Spirit at the time, and so if you want to just take a step in being maybe a little more biblical, the most biblical, the best way to begin your prayers is by praying to the Father. Is it sinful for you to pray to Jesus? No, it's not. Is it sinful for you to pray to the Holy Spirit? Absolutely not, but this is the model that Jesus gives us. Now, what we do see in prayer is this concept, and this is what I would love for you to wrestle with and say, how does this increase my love? In the Bible, we see, we see people praying to the Father in the name of the Son through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you why, why I think that's so cool. We come to the Father, but there's a problem. I don't deserve to be there. I know my sin. You know your sin. Your neighbor knows some of your sin. You guys could accuse me of some of my brokenness. Will, I saw you speeding. You went through a yellow light and you knew that it was stale. You knew it was going to be red before you made it all the way there, right? I, I got you, and you're a pastor. And now I feel better about when I run through a yellow light. That's like how sin works, right? We're just looking for a little bit of leeway. 
But what we find in this is that every one of us should recognize, I don't deserve to stand before a holy God. The creator of the universe, are you kidding me? For me to be able to talk to him, for him to, him to bend his ear and condescend to even care what is going on in my little piece of the world, it doesn't make any sense. And yet what we find in Romans is that the Bible says that Jesus is standing there interceding for us. It means he's stepping in front of, he's mediating, he's standing between. That's why we pray in Jesus' name. It's not like faith and trust and then a little pixie dust, right? I was going to pray that I would uh, get this new job, but I really want it, so I'm going to pray for the new job in Jesus' name, right? Like, now I'm really putting a stamp on that prayer. I might even say it twice. I might even say it, I might even start and end it. And, and somehow, in different like, places in Christianity, we just sort of throw out this, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. But here's the point. It isn't pixie dust. It isn't a magical little saying. What you're saying is, I don't deserve to be here. I don't deserve to pray this. I don't deserve for you to listen to me. So I'm not coming in Will's name, because that's a joke. If I come in Will's name, the best thing that God could do is say, I am going to launch you as far from my presence as I possibly could to maintain my own dignity and holiness. That's what God should say. But then all of a sudden, Jesus steps in. And when Jesus steps in, he says, I'm going to die so that this guy can be in a relationship with my father. I'm going to shed my blood so that every step that is necessary for you to have access so that I can close my eyes in this moment. By the way, you don't even have to close your eyes in prayer. It's not even in the Bible. It is helpful sometimes. In this moment, I can say, Father, I pray for a restful day today. And the creator of the universe hears my prayer. And it has nothing to do with me. It's because I'm coming in the name of Christ. And then we do all of this through the power of the Son. We see this in Romans 8 when the, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit makes groans and utterings that we can't even make sense of. Have you ever been so angry you didn't have words for it? Yes, you have. That's why you hit something, threw something, etc. and so on. Words weren't enough. You had to tear something or punch. I, I'm, I'm mostly speaking to guys. I, I know that a lot of females aren't emotive like that. I don't know how. My wife never gets angry. And so I don't know how y'all do it, but it's not true. But she does not throw her face right now. I was like... She doesn't throw stuff. She doesn't get angry like I do. But it also works on the other side. It works in joy. I pull into this parking lot when nobody else is here. And I, I look out at the tree line and I laugh. I'm not trying to. I'm just blown away that this guy who is a youth pastor in some barn in the middle of Columbus, that God has, has been so good to build this church. Last night I was walking into the sanctuary. We had to move the baptismal. And I walked in and I just laughed. That was the spirit of God inside, inside of me saying, there is something so good that your words are not even enough. So when you pray, you pray to the Father brought because of the work of the Son praying in the power of the Spirit, what am I even supposed to say? By the way, as you guys go out, Bethany, would you do me a favor? Would you stand up? There's a little stool right there. Uh, would you just hold up one of those pieces of paper? Uh, our printer got jacked up, and so I didn't get to put them in the pew. This is a, a neat little paper. It's an article that I probably read half a dozen times a year. Uh, it's written by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. It actually isn't. It's written by a guy who hung out with him. 
and Martin Lloyd-Jones taught him what it looked like to pray in the Spirit. This has impacted my prayer life more than almost anything that I've read, and it's so teeny and it's so short. And when you pick it up, you're going to be like, that is teeny font. It's because I didn't want to have to use a stapler. So I'm not actually intending. It was, it was going to take a lot more time. I just need you to Google that. And this is your reminder. And for those of you who want to feel younger than you are, you can try to push through without your specs. Great, go for it. Question number three. How were believers in the Old Testament brought to faith without the working of the Holy Spirit? They weren't. Question number four. I'm just kidding. I'm not kidding. They weren't. Like I said, the Holy Spirit was there for the entire time, but the Holy Spirit operated very different in the Old Testament than he did in the New. Lots and lots of things were different, but there is one thing that is the same across the board, and that is salvation. Go ahead and turn there. John chapter 8, verse 56. John 8, 56. It'll appear behind me as well. This is such a neat scripture. Somebody's asking Jesus about like Old Testament saints and how that whole thing worked out. And Jesus points back all the way to Abraham, Father Abraham. You don't have to be in the church to know the Father Abraham, many sons, that guy. We're going way back, like deep tracks into Genesis. And here's what Jesus says, speaking to people who are asking about salvation. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So Jesus goes all the way back to Abraham And here's what you can't miss about this verse. He puts it in the present tense, which you may not care about, but I do. So you're going to need to care about it for the next 15 seconds. Jesus could have very easily said, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He knew that he would see it and was glad. He doesn't say that. He says he saw it. He's not even saying that Abraham now in heaven is looking down and now he is seeing it. He's saying he saw it then. I'm present with you now, but Abraham back then knew. So what is Jesus saying? Salvation has always worked the same way. Faith in the work of Jesus on the cross is the only way to be saved. That's how you get saved today. It's how you got saved in Abraham's day. If the Lord doesn't come back for 2,000 years, Christianity is not getting a 2.0 or a 3.0. It is belief in Christ alone. But a good way that we can think about this is by faith, you and I look back on the cross, whereas Old Testament saints looked forward. Look, it takes faith to believe in Christ. You didn't walk with Jesus. You didn't see the miracles. And yet you have faith that he was a real person, that he died on the cross, that he lived a perfect life because you weren't going to, so that he could stand in front of God on your behalf. You believe that if you're a Christian by faith and you're looking back on the cross. Same thing in the Old Testament. They were like, we don't know exactly what the Savior is going to be, Once we get to the minor prophets, we sort of have a little bit of an idea. We get to the major prophets, we get a little bit more of an idea. But a lot of people missed it when Jesus showed up on the scene. Wait a minute, you're telling me you're going to be a carpenter? You're telling me that you're going to be a regular looking guy who who, uh, deals with stress and deals with anxiety? You're not going to be this being that just floats around? No, human like you are, so that he could die like you deserved to die. And they looked forward to that, that Jesus is the only way that we are saved. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit showed up in 
very particular ways to particular people for particular things. If you think about Samson, all right? Samson was like the real strong guy who had long hair, and then he married a very attractive lady, must have been, who just had the most abysmal character possible. And she's like, hey, Samson, how can I take the Lord's strength from you? That should be like sign number one, I've made a mistake here, right? And he's like, do this, and he lies to his wife. Okay, there's just so many problems with Samson. But that's the point. Samson, we read multiple times, was filled with the Spirit of God, and he brought judgment. He, he defended God's people. But Samson wasn't full of the Spirit of God 24-7, 365, like God offers to us today. If you look at Ezekiel in chapter 2, God had a very difficult message for difficult people. How did he do it? The Spirit of the Lord came on him to deliver that message. One of my favorites is in Exodus 31. There's this guy whose name is Bezalel. And Bezalel is just like this dude that makes super nice things. It's sort of like, um, what's the, the people in Texas who were doing all the interior design and then Target was like, we can make money on this? Magnolia, yeah, Chip and Joanne, right? And, and, and it's just like, they touch stuff and it's like, mm, I need that, right? It's simple, but it's elegant and it's open and it's community. I could love Jesus better if I had chip lap, right? Like that's kind of... It's a, y'all, you, don't tell me you haven't done that. You're like, we need to upgrade. You know, we would host more, justify, right? And you just kind of go on. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm human too. Bezalel, the Bible says the Holy Spirit came on him so he could make beautiful things for the worship of God. He, he's able to make these lampstands and these golden things. And then he's done with that job. Holy Spirit's like, deuces. Like his business could have really taken off. At the end of that, yeah, man, I designed the whole church. I did this, I did that. And then they go to him and they're like, your stuff just doesn't look as good as it used to. And he's like, Holy Spirit was all over me then. I don't know what happened. That's how it actually played out in the Holy Spirit. Particular people, particular ways, particular things. But not those of us today. John 16, 7 and 8. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go away, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. This is really a phenomenal text. And the reason it's a phenomenal text is it's incredibly holistic. Jesus says, number one, it's better for you that I leave. I can only be in one place at one time. I have flesh, I have bone, I have blood. When I am preaching in Galilee, I'm not over here in Capernaum. I'm not in Columbus, Georgia. But when my spirit comes, his presence is boundless. And then he says the Holy Spirit's going to do a couple of things. He's going to help you and he's going to convict you. One of those things sounds better than the other, right? But we need both. The, Karen Ann and I like watching this show on Netflix called F1. I've never been into racing. I've, I, I grew up in, in the South, never watched an entire NASCAR race. My dad and his buddies would, and I was like, I just can't do this, right? Like, back then, it was nothing but, like, cigarettes, beer, and circles. And I was, like, 12 years old, and I was like, I just, I can't get into any of this right now. And I never did, but something about F1, the, the way that these guys are talking in their headsets and they have these massive teams helping them shave five seconds off of a lap. And I don't know, have any of you guys watched this? I need to know who my F1 people on Netflix are. Just raise your hand, I need to know who you are. 
The moment they get good, there's six of you. That's great. I don't even care about the rest of you for this next minute. When they get in the headset, Thomas, you raised your hand, right? I'm connecting with you in this moment because you're one of the few, right? When they get on the headset and they go, push, push, it's my favorite thing in the entire show. They say it in this like European accent and there's this driver who is on the edge of control about to slide out and, and maybe wreck his car and his life. And then over the radio comes this voice, push, push, and the dude just leans into it. And when I think about that, that is one way to think of the gift of the Holy Spirit to the Christian today, that he is in our ear constantly. And one of the most beautiful ways that he is in our ear is to say, push, push, have the conversation, reach out, pray, ask that person about their day, get the name of the waiter, get the name of the waitress, leave a book behind, leave a track behind, push, 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 but then in the same way, the moment that I sin, he's in my ear and he's in my heart. And the conviction of God is the most horribly wrapped gift. It doesn't look good. It doesn't feel good. You see conviction in the corner of your life and you just don't even want to go to it. But can I tell you, let me get every eye for a moment on this. It's one of the ways I actually know that I'm a Christian. The moment I sin and feel no conviction, that's when I begin to worry about the state of my soul. I am grateful that we live in this weird place right now. According to God, you were known before you were ever born. There's an eternity over there where you were known by God even though you didn't have a synapse to fire in your brain. And the Bible tells us that you are an eternal being with a soul, which means for all eternity, you are either going to be near him in worship or apart from him in separation and darkness and brokenness. What that means is you and I right now are in this really weird, rare, teeny little piece of our timeline. And it's crazy because if you're a Christian in this little 30 years, 50 years, 80 years, 94 years, depending on your grandma, however old God wills for you to be, if you're a Christian, you have this weird thing going on where you have this flesh that wants to rebel from God and simultaneously you have a spirit that wants to go toward him, Romans 7 says. It's one of the most bizarre things. Question number four, what does, what does scripture mean when it talks about eternal sin for blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? This one's really fast and it's really simple and it points to repentance, which is why I'm following conviction with this. If you look at Mark 3, here's what you'll read. Truly I say, this is verse 28 and 29. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. Those are three scary words, but is guilty of an eternal sin. I, I remember when I was growing up, when I was in high school, this was the scary verse, right? It's like, dude, how many times do I have to go to youth? How long does my prayer time have to be? I will read the entire Bible. I might even learn a little bit of Greek. How does that not be true of me? And, and I grew up at a time when there were lots of um, evangelistic shows and programs which had a whole lot more to do with hell than Jesus. It was like, who wants to see what it's like to burn in the fires of hell? 55 minutes. Jesus, three minutes at the end. Hey, wouldn't it be better to hang out with me? It's like, yes, I want that. This is terrifyingly scary. What am I supposed to do about it? If you look at Acts 7.51, that's going to appear uh, up on the screen behind me. 
Acts 7, 51. We'll get there because we're working through the book of Acts. I think this is a great example of that. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. To simplify, the eternal, unforgivable sin is constant resistance to the Holy Spirit. I don't want to oversimplify, but what it's basically saying is, if you don't repent, you're not going to be saved. If you resist the Holy Spirit who is pointing to conviction and sin in your life, you should fully expect for your sin to be eternal forever and always. And there are people in our worlds whose necks are stiff. I am going to do this. This is my way. This is what is best for me. This is what I am choosing. And the Holy Spirit is knocking on the doors of hearts and they will not turn. Friends and neighbors are coming. You're wrecking your family. You're wrecking your life. You're telling yourself that sin is not sin to try to make a way for what you think is going to be pleasurable. And you won't turn your head to look at me, to listen to me. This constant push against repentance is what will cost you your soul. Because the gospel is all about repentance. It is a one-time repentance so that I am in Christ and then a lifetime of repentance to remind myself that the Spirit of God is still working in me. Question number five. Am I only saved if I can feel the Holy Spirit? This is a really interesting question. Um, It's interesting because our feelings can be so deceptive at times, right? Like, there have been numerous times in your life where you felt this and then you realized, oh, that did not play out the way that I expected it to. But in that moment, you were just so sure. And it's why I think a lot of people struggle with their salvation. They're like, when I was 12, I felt this, and now I'm 40 and I don't feel it. Does that mean it isn't true? It wasn't true? What does this mean for me? I, I, I think I can comfort us all in this. Romans 8, 9 puts it this way. I want you to watch for attention. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. That is a dichotomy that the Bible makes over and over. As humans, we love making dichotomies. We make them where they don't even exist in scripture. But this is one that does exist, the flesh and the spirit. And you're gonna see it all throughout the Bible. You're also gonna notice a lot of ifs in this passage. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is alive because of righteousness. This is what's so interesting about this place where you live if you're a Christian. Your body is alive. I'm looking at you. Nobody has fallen out yet. Your eyes are open, blinking, most of you. Some of you have blinked them closed and held it there for a hot minute. That's all right. But your body is alive. It's active. And yet, as we're reading through God's word, the Holy Spirit is illuminating things, and your soul begins to breathe as well. When we say, I should feel the Holy Spirit, what I think you really should be saying is, I want to feel the tension between my flesh and between my spirit. I want to feel it is a good thing. It was not a bad thing for Jesus to be tempted. It is a bad thing to fall into temptation. It is a good thing for you occasionally to be put in places where you have to choose against sin. 
It is good that there is still a body, there is still a flesh for this battle because it is the struggle against your sin that displays that the Spirit of God is active. The the text goes on. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. When it goes to our feelings, keep this in mind, you are a mind, body, soul, Spirit, that's what you are. You're all of these things together. Feelings and the Spirit are not synonymous. Uh, Let let me give you an example. All right, we're going to do a little activity together. I can't really do it because I'm standing up. What I want you to do, I want you to keep your toes on the ground, but I want you to lift. Y'all are such a responsive group. I love y'all. I love that I get to pastor you. Like, there are so many churches that, like, if I go to and speak, like, this is the way they let you know that they love you and the Bible. And I'm just so grateful. Like, I love you guys. I want you to put your toes on the ground. I want you to lift your heel in the air. I want, you to, I want your heel to want to go as high as it can while your toe stays firmly planted on the ground. And I want you to hold that for 10 seconds. Some of you are already cramping up. Fowler tried CrossFit for the first time. You get to pass, all right? You're going to have rhabdo if you do this activity. And we're going to have to carry you out to your car. Okay, stop. Until that moment, none of you had felt your calf while you were sitting in that pew. You don't, you don't feel your bicep right now. You don't feel your shoulder right now. You're just sitting there. But in that 10 seconds, when that muscle is stretched, when it's pressed, all of a sudden in your calf and in the back of your leg, you feel it. It's there. It's active. Can I just tell you, you are a body and a spirit. It is not hard to make you feel emotional things. I know it. Roll your window down. Turn your music up. You will feel different things. When we're in worship, we can change the mix. You will feel different things. Put on a little YouTube video of puppies. You will feel different things. Your emotions are not a difficult thing to deal with, to, emo- to, to, to manipulate. But here's the point. How often are you trying to get your emotions to tell you that your spirit is alive rather than flexing the muscle of your spirit? What would it look like when you want to feel the Holy Spirit to say, the goal is not for me to feel this. The goal is for me to say, how can I flex the reality that the Spirit of God abides in me? What is it that he does? He is constantly illuminating Christ. He is constantly illuminating Scripture. So if I'm just standing off to the side saying, I don't know if I'm believing, I don't know if the Holy Spirit's a part of my life, and I'm not going to the gym where he operates, I shouldn't expect to feel anything. Is your definition of feeling the Holy Spirit good worship? Worship where you're tapping your foot. We can manipulate that. Is it a sermon where you learn something new? Guess what? That isn't necessarily the healthiest thing. You can learn eight new things today and be worse off if it hasn't connected with your heart and caused you to love other people. But what if your definition of feeling the Holy Spirit is seeing Jesus more real, seeing him more clearly, wanting to live for him in a more real way. Let me ask you this question. Fill in this blank. Now look, I'm not gonna, you're, you're not gonna have to answer it out loud, so you can be real or you can be churchy with it. I don't even care, all right? You can come up with your churchy answer and your honest answer if you want to. My ambitious is to lead a blank life. What would you put in that blank? Let me give you five seconds. I want you to actually come up with a word. 
I'll tell you what I would put in there. Effective. Efficient. Meaningful. Purposeful. That's what I would feel. And I would say, you know what? That's what the Holy Spirit wants from me. And then we read 1 Thessalonians 4.11. And make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Will Hogg does not like that. Some of you love it. You're like, introverts unite. Ha! <laughs> All of you sharing the gospel making me feel bad. I'm quiet. I'm quiet. It's amazing to me that Jesus, the one by whom all things were made, Colossians tells us, all power, all knowledge, got to the end of the day and said, I need to go on a quiet walk. It amazes me that Jesus would constantly retreat from ministry to pray alone. I don't do that. I don't do it well at all. And here Jesus is so much stronger and wiser and greater than me. If Jesus is rehearsing silence and solitude, we ought to be. Do you know those used to be like spiritual rhythms like reading your Bible and praying? Just being silent? Just not having a podcast on while you drive? Not listening to music? Not needing something happening all that? I said this months and months ago. I'll give you one real quick way to apply this. Check in on your soul before you check in on your phone in the morning. The moment I pick up my phone, a wave of the reality of the day sweeps me away and I can never get back. Notifications, little red dots, bings and pings grab me. But if I refuse to look at that little black brick until I've opened the living word of God, my soul is in a different place. Is it your ambition to lead a quiet life? Question six. We're almost three. Throughout moments in my day, how do I know the Holy Spirit is leading me? How do I know if I'm being convicted by him or my own conscience? Oh, you could have an entire sermon on this one, and I'm not going to do that to y'all. I'm going to make this real brief. But can I also tell you, it can be ministerial malpractice for me to answer this. Because the people who wrote this in, probably we should get together and talk. Because you're talking about an individualized situation and it's not always hyper clear, but I, I wanna give you an answer for this because I think it's helpful for us. Romans 2.15 says this. They, it's speaking of unbelievers here, show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. What's happening here is people who do not have the presence of the Holy Spirit in their life are convicted in some way their conscience. This happens all the time. You grow up in a Christian home or you're told that you're never supposed to drink or you have an accurate understanding of what intimacy is supposed to look like before marriage and after marriage and you have these guardrails that when you do the wrong thing, you feel that you have done wrong. But what scripture is saying is all people have that. Everyone, in a sense, because they're created in the image of God, has right and wrong written on their hearts. Atheists are not disagreeing that murder is wrong. They don't need to go to three Bible classes to get there. We just get it. I would argue it's because we're created in the image of God and there is something divine in each and every one of us. But what the scripture is saying is when that conscience is hit, they can feel accused, but they can also excuse it. You know what? I feel that, but nobody's perfect. 
right? Pobody's perfect, right? The, the fact that that is a re- realistic saying. But then here's what we read in 2 Corinthians 7. There are two kinds of grief. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Two kinds of grief. You can do the wrong thing and feel bad for it and it be worldly and have nothing to do with whether or not your soul is alive. You can do the wrong thing and the Holy Spirit convict you and it lead to repentance. That is the key word of this and everything else when it comes to the Holy Spirit because that's what the Holy Spirit does. He shows you Christ, he shows you you, and then he shows you the path for those two things to come together. And the only path is repentance. So how do I know if what I'm feeling is conviction from the Holy Spirit or conviction from my own conscience? Number one, if it... If what you are feeling is that you have lost God's approval and that you need to repent, Holy Spirit 100% all the time, Monday to Friday, Saturday and Sunday too. 100%. I have let God down. I have broken his law. I am outside of right relationship with him and I need to repent to be brought back in. That is the Holy Spirit. But if your conscience is affected because other people are upset with you, that may have nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. Some of you feel bad, guilty, and apologize for things you shouldn't. And we wrap it up in this big ball called Christianity and grace, and we forget the truth of it all. You don't need to apologize every time somebody's upset with you. You don't. Jesus upset people regularly. He didn't go to the Pharisees and say, you're on your way to hell, and I am so sorry, but I've got to tell you this. No. If you don't repent, if you are outside of the work of Christ, you need the conviction of the Holy Spirit to come in, and it doesn't always come with an I'm sorry. I don't know if this surprises you or not. I'm a very transparent guy. I drink alcohol. This is a Baptist church. We don't put that on the sign. Feel free to leave now if you want to. That won't bother me a bit. That's the point. There are people who would tell me, Will, if you're drinking alcohol, you are outside of the will of God. I'm not convicted of the Holy Spirit. I've read my Bible. I know where the lines are in this. You don't get to guilt me for something the Holy Spirit doesn't guilt me for. I've had people tell me I couldn't preach the gospel because my hair was too long. Not now, but when it used to be down to here. How could you possibly live an organized godly life when you're so chaotic and feminine? I am not a feminine guy. It was not the issue. It's a legit bun, and it looked great. <laughs> I was told that if I didn't have certain clothing, that people should not even look at me or listen because of the, it's just not true. And I don't need to spend my life running around telling people that I'm doing okay. Do you see what I'm saying here? The conviction of the Holy Spirit is such a beautiful thing. Have I let God down? Have I let people down? If I've let God down, it's repentance 100% of the time. If I've let people down, it might be. And it might also be an area where they need to be repentant. It might also be a way we can go in grace and truth and just say, here is the reality. J.I. Packer puts it this way in a little quote. Sanctification has a double aspect. Its positive side is vivification. You should write that word down and try to use it this week. It's beautiful and it's awesome. It means it brings things to life. The Holy Spirit vivifies, brings life to things, the growing and maturing of the new man. Its negative side is mortification, the weakening and killing of the old man. 
The Holy Spirit is alive inside of me, and so is sin, and that is insane. That God would be present in the life of a believer while sin is present as well. You want to talk about a mystery as big as the Trinity? That is a mystery to me. But here's what I know. The Holy Spirit is constantly doing two things. He's causing my soul to come to life for the mission of the gospel. And he's murdering my flesh at the same time. And when I'm not murdering my flesh, when I'm breathing life into my flesh, I'm killing mission. And when I'm breathing life by going to God and being led by the Spirit in mission, he is killing and murdering my flesh. And as a Christian, I would want nothing less. Here's the last question that we have for the day. Stokes, you can go ahead and come on up. Y'all were wondering, this one had to come up, right? Speaking in tongues. We're all going to practice. I need one person to enter. Speaking in tongues. What about tongues, miraculous gifts, spiritual gifts, and our calling? How can we be cautious like Paul without limiting the Holy Spirit? I was on a mission trip a number of years ago. And the missions organization that we went with was leading us. They put together our week. And we were staying up pretty late every night talking about what we'd seen, the work of Christ, people responding to the gospel, meeting the needs of the poor and the marginalized. And the guy, I think his name was John, that was leading the mission, he came to me on night three or four. He said, Will, you gotta put your kids to bed. Like, they're staying up too late, they're talking too much, and they're gonna be tired in the morning. I'm a night owl. That was not a time that I needed his conviction. He was wrong. And the reason that he was wrong was because some of his leaders were telling our students that if they didn't speak in tongues, they didn't have the Holy Spirit, and therefore they were not saved. And I looked John in the eye and I said, bro, look, I'm with you. I want them to have energy. But my students are scared to go to sleep because they thought they'd been Christians for 10 years and now they're not sure if they are or not. I got to talk with them. We've got to go deep into this. There are subsects of Christianity where the miraculous gifts are intentionally lifted up to be seen speaking in tongues and prophecy, and there can be a, hey, look at me type of a mentality. That's not the the culture that we come from biblically or spiritually, but there can be a look at me mentality. But I want you to understand this. I don't think it's always pride. I don't think the, the person who wants to be seen or is singing or playing because they want to be seen or they're speaking in tongues, I, I don't think it's always a pride issue. Sometimes I think it's a they need assurance from other people that they're actually spiritual. I think sometimes it actually comes from a deficiency. And then the pendulum swings all the way to the other unhealthy side and there are people who are like, I want Jesus to increase so I'm gonna diminish. And that's great. But don't forget that God has called us The Bible tells us that he has given teachers, he's given miracle workers, he's given people who who speak in tongues, people who exhort, and you are supposed to build the body of Christ. It's not a tension of where I'm trying to find where I live between these. These people need to be focused on pointing to Jesus, and that's where they need to put all of their energy. And these people, which is more of you, these people need to say, whatever gift I have, I'm not going to be shy about it. Because it isn't about me in the first place. 
Bezalel didn't say, man, come and look at this great stuff that I built in the tabernacle. He said, God built me to do this. I'm going to do it, and now I'm going to step back. The question is, what is God calling you to do and to be? And the reason that I say this is the Holy Spirit is constantly pointing to Christ. If you think about it, the Father sent the Son, and Jesus kept pointing back to the Father. And then Jesus sends the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit just keeps pointing to the Son. Scott Petty says the Holy Spirit is like a spotlight. All he wants to do is put light on Jesus, illuminate Jesus. You open your Bible, you see Jesus. You meet with someone over coffee, you see Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit is all about. And do you know what Jesus wants? He wants his beautiful bride to know who she is. That's you, Christian. Jesus loves the body of Christ. He constantly is lifting up the beauty of you and me, broken people just trying to figure out how do I display Jesus? And it's why Paul says to the Corinthians, hey, not everybody speaks in tongues. Not everybody teaches, not everybody exhorts, not everybody performs miracles, not everybody heals. I want to show you a more excellent way. And then he says this, 1 Corinthians 13, 1. If I speak human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, there it is. If I have a faith that could move mountains, that's what teenage Will wanted. But I have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all my possessions, I'm the epitome of generosity. If I give over my body, I would even die for the faith. But have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, kind, does not envy, does not boast. The presence of the Spirit of God in the life of a believer does not simply increase knowledge. It increases our love. So as we leave this place, as we stand up to worship, here's the question. It's not how many questions did you get right? How many of them did you have great answers to, better answers, more full answers to? That isn't it. Does knowing that the Spirit of God resides in a broken person like you to build a broken church into something beautiful make you love people? That's what the Holy Spirit is all about. Stand with me if you would. We're going to sing a song. We're going to close out. But before we do, I would be remiss to let you know that if the Spirit of God has been working and you know that you need prayer, you need to be encouraged, there's something going on in your life, Josh and Bethany Page are off to the side in blue shirts. They would love to pray with you as we close out in worship. If you need to follow up on anything, especially if there's a concern about your salvation, I don't know if I'm really saved, I don't know if I'm truly trusting in Christ, please come and find me or any of uh, Stokes, any of the pastors or elders here. We would love to encourage you. Let me say a brief prayer and then let's sing. Father, I am grateful that in this moment as I speak, you hear me, you hear us. That in a moment of silence, every one of us in this room could reach out to you in prayer and because of the work of your son, we can be heard. Father, this is my simple prayer. Fill us with your spirit in such a way that we see Jesus more clearly and live like him more fully. 
May love, more than knowledge or anything else, attend our ways. May we love to sing these words. May we love to fellowship with those around us. May we love to pursue you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Amen.